And uh, if you don't have your Bible printed on the back of your sermon outline are a number of scriptures. Never be overwhelmed by all of the scripture passages that I have there. Uh, they're, they're listed there simply to, uh, for you to reference through the week and for me to reference perhaps in my sermon. But take these, be aware that these are threads of scripture woven together that, that reinforce the message of God's Word today. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus finishes the Beatitudes, and then we read, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So far, the reading of God's Word. I like salt. You give me mashed potatoes, they're all right. What's the first thing I do after the mashed potatoes get on the plate? I add a little bit of salt to them. They're plain, and suddenly, when you put salt on mashed potatoes, suddenly they dance on your taste buds. The flavor, both from the salt and its effect on the potatoes, enhances everything. Same with scrambled eggs, right? It's why we love bacon with our scrambled eggs, the saltiness. The body needs salt. Yes, I know uh, the doctors here are concerned, and my blood pressure is just fine. But I like salt, and I like light. This is the wonderful time of the year, isn't it? So different from late in December when the sun rises late in the morning and it sets before you get out of the office and it's dark and we experience what some people call seasonal mood disorder. You know what I'm talking about, those dreary, dark winter days. But this week we're, we're near the, the, we're getting close to the longest day of the year. The sun rises early and greets us and it stays light until well into the night. And I love the light. I've been thinking all week about Christians as salt and light. And isn't this picture a good one? This light bulb with a salt shaker cap combined together. An image capturing what Jesus Christ tells His disciples as He finishes the Beatitudes. And you see in your outline, point number one, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and so He made you savory. Do you know the word savory? It's a it's a, it's a way of tasting that is not sweet, and the primary savory gift is, is from salt. It's like adding zest to the food. It means 
this word savory. It means pungently flavorful. And I think when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying that, well, he's saying several things, but first he's saying you are flavorful. Wherever you go, there is a flavor that accompanies you as you interact with other people. And the reason that's the priority is because later on when he says, if you lose your saltiness, it's a different word. It's if you lose that, uh, your flavor. So that's really the, the force of what he's talking about, although salt does so many other things. But the first thing is just as the salt makes the potatoes dance on my taste buds. So your presence at work, your presence in your neighborhood, your presence in school is like a savory presence. That There's zest, there's life, there's flavor because you are there. Where does this come from? Jesus said, and you can again look at some of these Bible verses, Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Some translations say, and have it abundantly, abundant life. And so what we know from the Bible is that Christians are not supposed to be, have boring existences. You have been given an abundant life, a full life, a life of purpose. Christians are not to be aimless, purposeless. To the contrary, the Bible teaches that there are two great mandates uh, uh, in the Bible for the Christian life. We call them, you've heard this perhaps, we have been given the cultural mandate and we have been given the gospel mandate. If you're alive a human being on this earth. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, our first parents, what did He say? Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth. Increase. And Adam and Eve had the exciting job of naming the animals and and tending the garden. And soon after that, in in chapter 3 and then in chapter 4, there was the creation of industry. There was the iron workers I don't know if there was an iron worker union that's early, but they were the iron workers. And then there was Tubal Cain and Jubal Cain who played the flute. And suddenly the arts were all through the earth. This is the cultural mandate. And if you're alive and you understand why you're alive, you were not meant to just lie around like a rock, but to be a partner in the dominion of the earth. And you do it with zest because you understand that life is more than just living to pay the bills. Did you hear me on that? Life is more than just living to pay the bills. And life is more than just living for the weekend. Your life is to be flavorful, full of zest. That's the cultural mandate. But the second great mandate is the gospel mandate. The even greater mandate that Jesus gave, we call it the Great Commission, go into all the earth and make disciples, do evangelism, preach the gospel, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach each other to obey, Jesus said, everything I have commanded you. That's the gospel mandate. And the Christian is full of flavor, a savory aroma, the Bible says, to those who are living, 
It's an unpleasant odor to those who are perishing, but to those that are alive, you preach the gospel. You witness for Jesus. You stand for His righteousness, and guess what? It's like salt on mashed potatoes. It has its effect. The Beatitudes in the pre first verses describe how you have a relationship with Jesus and, and you become humble. You become meek. You're somebody who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness. You become more and more pure in heart. And now, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. These things in you that He has woven, these things make you appealing to the people you meet. My own testimony, some of you have heard me tell my story that there was intellectual searching, yeah, and there was uh, emotional searching. But I met a young lady in my high school. Her name was Erica. And Erica could sing and play the guitar like Carol King, and she was, uh, you know, an athlete, and she was really smart, and she was lovely, and everybody loved her. And she hung out. She hung out with people who were beneath her social station. She hung out with anybody. And in a sort of a class conscious high school, she was swimming against the stream because she loved everybody. And I asked her about it one day. I said, Erica, what is it that compels you to be so comfortable with, you know, just anybody? She said this. She said, Oh, John. Jesus Christ loved me when I was unlovely, and now I can love anybody. And I'll tell you, that was a salty moment. That was a savory moment to me. And I said to myself, who is this Jesus that puts this kind of love in people? and sets them free from status, sets them free from self-concern. Who is this Jesus? I'd like to get to know Him. And that was a, a, a springboard to my own spiritual conversion in many ways. You, are, you bring flavor. But of course, in the ancient world, salt was so important because it was a preservative. It not only was flavorful, but it would stop the putrefaction of meat. Because if you have meat in the open market, what happens? Bacteria gets on the meat, and pretty soon it becomes putrid. But if you rub it with salt, it stops the putrefaction process. And so, when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, of course, He is also saying that you will be used of God to stop the decay of the culture around you. And can we not agree that... The moral attitude of our world is like being on a downward escalator. People don't naturally become more holy, become more kind. No, people are more selfish. And though in the turn of the previous century there was all kind of optimism, there were two terrible world wars. There was the murder of millions and millions of people. And, and now in a postmodern world, the overarching sense is there is despair. What will hold back the tide of decay? Jesus says, it's you, the church. 
And you are like salt that stops the bacterial erosion and ruin of the world. How do you do it? You do it in your manner of speech and by your content of speech. And you see this in Colossians 4, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Isn't that interesting? So that you may know how to answer everyone. And so your tongue, what you say, how you speak really matters in this world. Moms and dads, we teach our teenagers not to use certain speech, not to use certain language. Why? Because we want them to have a salty influence. We want them, their, their speech to be kind, not mean, to be edifying, not destructive, to be thoughtful, not ignorant. Why? Let your speech be seasoned with salt, he says. Will the members of the North Shore Community Church be people whose speech builds up and edifies and encourages, or will your speech be the kind that tears down and discourages? And of course, it's not just how you speak, but it's the content of your speech. And let me just say one thing here. It's very interesting. I read uh, um, a column called Breakpoint this week by John Stone Street. And he's talking about the culture wars. And he asks the question, who wins the culture wars? Right? As we see the moral decay of our culture around us, as people are arguing for different positions. And he says this, the first lesson in debate is he who frames the debate, he who frames the issue, wins the debate. He who frames the issue wins the debate. And it's always true. Any good lawyer will tell you that. And he goes on and he reflects that right now a recent Gallup poll says that there are a growing number of people in the majority in America who are pro-life. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't surprise you. From several decades ago, it has grown. The pro-life population in America has actually grown to be a majority. How has this happened? And he said, the issue has been reshaped from personal choice to is the preborn baby a human and is it alive? And as the scientific community has created these incredible devices, these sonograms, these uh, machines that show the baby wiggling and moving inside the mother's womb, it becomes so clear to the most ignorant person that, of course, this is life. The issue has been reframed. And the change will not come because of the courts. It will come in the culture. The same thing was true of the civil rights movement, wasn't it? In the 1960s and the 1950s, as Christian people stood against those who said, well, uh, we have the old ways, and the old ways are our tradition, and segregation is just the way it's going to be. And then Christian men and women and others reframed the issue. Is it true that all people are created equal? and granted the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and should be treated equally. And the issue was reframed. 
And what was right carried the day. Now what is so interesting is in today's current dialogue about the redefinition of marriage, isn't this interesting to watch? Whoever shapes the issue, frames the issue, will win the debate. And should marriage be redefined? It's so interesting. Some are trying to shape the issue in terms of civil rights. But just last week, it was fascinating to read, just last week there was a group of African, a coalition of African-American pastors, a national group of black clergymen, and they came together and issued a statement objecting, objecting to the comparison of the redefinition of marriage to the struggle of civil rights. And they said, that's not the issue. Should we say that particular sexual impulses should be considered a civil rights issue? Never should it be a civil rights issue, especially if God says it's not right. Be very interesting to see because, you see, these issues ultimately will not be settled in the courts. They will be settled in the culture. Now, who will speak to these issues? Who will be salt Who will be light? Don't be unaware that that's what's going on. It is the shaping of the issue that determines the outcome of the debate. And you, you are to be salt and light. You lean against sin in your family. You lean against sin in your school. You lean against sin in your culture. And these young people who stood up front here today, these teenagers, as they, as they blast off into college, we're so excited for you. We're so excited for your future. But you need to know that God wants you to be salt, both flavor for blessing and a preservative, standing against that which is evil in this world. But the third thing about salt, and I missed this for many years, is that salt is a symbol of faithfulness. And um, as I was reading Sinclair Ferguson's comments on this, he went back to an obscure passage in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. I've read through Leviticus 2 many times, and I never really got this. It says, season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to your offerings. What in the world is that all about? And Ferguson said that what God was requiring of these people when they put their stuff in the offering basket, as it were, that there was an additional deposit of salt which was precious to them as a statement saying, I will be faithful to you, my Lord. And the salt became a statement of covenant faithfulness. Here's what he said. In the last analysis, this is what makes the Christian different. He is faithful both to his Lord and to others. The Christian can be trusted. He's like Joseph in the court of Pharaoh. He's like Daniel in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. He's like John the Baptist standing face to face with King Herod. The Christian will be faithful to speak the truth in the face of evil, 
and he will stand, she will stand. If you don't, Jesus gives a severe warning. And this was dis- disconcerting to us, isn't it, as we read it. He says, if you're not, if you're not salty, if you lose your saltiness, he says, you're worthless to me. It's very strong language, Jesus. You didn't learn that at Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. And Jesus says, you're thrown out. And it's an important question. If you're having no influence at all in your faith, in your world, where you live or work or play, in your family, if you're having no influence at all for Jesus Christ, then you have to ask the question, am I even a Christian at all? You are the salt of the earth. But then, secondly, Jesus pushes this even further, and He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the brights. Now, I use that term deliberately, you are the brights, because does anybody know who's calling themselves the brights today? It's really very interesting. In all the atheist websites, the websites of Richard Dawkins and of Christopher Hitchens, uh, who is now deceased, but uh, of uh, Daniel Dennett and all the new atheists today, they have adopted certain terminology that makes them feel pretty good about themselves, and they call themselves the brights. The religious people are referred to as the dulls. So all you people sitting here today, if you were in the presence of Richard Dawkins, he would say, you are the dulls. And the loser is God. God is the loser. It sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? God is the loser, you are the dulls, and the atheists say, we are the brights. Well, I'm sorry, but they can't have the term because Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world, and then He said, you are the light of the world, and it's already copyrighted, and it's already trademarked. I'm sorry, it's on the t-shirts already. You've got to pay royalties for it to Jesus Christ. He had it first. You are the brights, you who have Jesus in your heart, because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so the brights are you and you and you and you. We see this. This is where it comes from. The brightness comes vertically to you, from your relationship with Jesus Christ, from the living out of Christ in you in the, as He lays it in the Beatitudes, but then He gives His light to shine through you. Our teenagers, I say to the teenagers, I, I saw this interesting ad in World Magazine. It's a picture of a young lady listening intently to her college professor, and the ad says, will your daughter's Christianity survive Dr. Spicer's atheism. So she's in the English class, and it says, in the war of ideas, some people have an advantage, like college professors. Dr. Spicer weaves atheism into every lecture. Whether he's talking about sentence syntax or Shakespeare, how will your daughter's faith survive? Why is this? Because the atheist has a world and life view that is internally consistent, that that they have within themselves, and they present this to their students and to each other. But the Christian 
has a world and life view that makes sense. What am I talking about? You who are the light of the world. What is this light? It's this. The atheist says, ah, this universe, these bodies around you, it's all a result of random chance and chaos. It just happened accidentally. DNA, the eyeball, the clotting of blood, the fact that our third rock from the sun, the earth, just happens to be the right distance to sustain life. All, it's all a big cosmic accident. But we, we believe in creation. And what I mean by creation is that we believe that the intelligent hand of God is be- behind the design of everything and sustains all life. So we believe in creation and that there is an intelligent designer behind everything. The world, the world, the atheists, they see the suffering and they see the dysfunction of the world and they see the conflicts and the problems and they say it's just random tragedy. It's just random tragedy. How do you explain all the bad things that happen in this world? They can't. But we, we believe that evil has invaded the world and the world is fallen. Creation but fall. And in our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, there was the invasion of evil into this world. We live in a fallen world. How do you explain war? The moral categories of evil that God gave us in His Word explain war, selfishness, greed, and oppression, explained by the fallen nature of this world. Disease and death, a result of the fall. Creation, fall. But then the atheist says, I guess man has to solve his own problems. And what does every teenager need to know? Man cannot solve his own problems. But God so loved the world that He sent His Son into the world to redeem the world, that God has a plan for redemption. He's going to change the world. Creation, fall, redemption, and now He invites His church to be salt and light in the reclaiming of a renegade planet. Wow. These are the categories that make sense out of life. And I say to every young person here, The older people need to learn this too. You need to understand you live in a created world. You live in a fallen world. And you live in a world that is being redeemed. And these are the categories that we carry with us to explain the world around us. That's what it means to be a thinking Christian in these days. And he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And you can't be hidden when you shine for Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus knows you will be tempted to hide your light. He knows, he says, that you'll be tempted to put it under a basket. And we talked about this. Why would you do this? The answer, of course, is that the world doesn't like it. And Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. We all resist experiencing the hostility that comes from being known as a Christian, a faithful Christian. It's tough to stand for righteousness. It's not easy to be salt stopping the bacteria that's decaying the world around you to stand against the moral filth of our day or the unrighteousness or the oppression. So here's what you're going to be tempted to say. You're going to be tempted to say, 
my religion is very private. I'm not, I'm not like all those people who wear their religion on their shirt sleeve and try and shove it down their, your throat. My religion is private, and I don't want to talk about it. Jesus says you'll be tempted to say that, but when you say that, you are betraying your call to be light to the world. Don't be afraid. Act as though being a Christian was the most natural thing in the world, believing in creation, believing in the fall, believing in redemption, believing in, in, the, in the ways of God, as though it were the most natural thing of the, in the world because it is. Don't be ashamed. Jesus is very serious about this again. And he says, um, let your light shine before men. Don't be afraid. Put it on the stand. People are in darkness. People are experiencing pollution all around them. You should be salt and light to them. So, here we go. Be salt and light. Be that light bulb. Be that salt shaker. Wherever you go, let this image capture who He made you to be. You are salt and light. What does this look like? How do you envision yourself as salt and light for the Lord? And this is my question to you right now, because the Lord brought us to a moment. One of the core values of this church that we love so much is every member ministry. Every member ministry. And you can't imagine what it meant to my heart to see all those people who work to help Vacation Bible School standing up front here, working together as one. And some of you didn't come forward. And, and we have people laboring as salt and light, but it's every one of us. I am not the minister of the church. You are the ministers. My job is to equip The job of the elders is to teach and to train your home fellowship group leader, your Bible study leader, to teach and train. But you are the ministers. How do you envision yourself? Everybody's not the same. You are unique. And you minister in the church and outside the church. Some of you are more comfortable ministering outside the church. You need to find your place of connection inside the church. Some of you are only comfortable inside the church, but don't want to be salt and light to the watching world. And you need to correct that. What can you do to help? Where can you let your light shine? Well, if you say, I have no idea, come on Saturday morning and help out at the food pantry. Give Karen Connolly a call and say, how can I help out with the thrift store? When Tay Cho gets here, if you have any concern for teenagers at all, call him up, take him to lunch, and say, how can I support the youth ministry or the children's ministry? Let him hear from you. If you have young children, if you're a parent and you have an infant or a toddler, you connect with Kim and Martin Hahn and this Families with Young Children Fellowship that we have in this church because you need support. (laughs) You need encouragement. You need salt and light with each other. And that's just a hint of where to begin. But then outside the church, outside the church, how will you be known as salt and light? Let your light shine. I was so encouraged by World Magazine's um, uh, edition. This is their, the month when they have their Hope Awards. 
And it is startling to see over 200 amazing ministries started by regular people in churches. This is a group of men in South Dakota, and they've started a group called Boys to Men. And it's a three-year program where they find young men whose fathers have abandoned the family, and they find men in the churches in their city, and those men for three years will teach boys how to hunt, how to fix a car, and how to change the oil in a car, and to change a tire. And they will teach the boys how to go to church, and how to read the Bible, and how to respect women. And, and these men over a three-year period have certain goals to come alongside young boys. And they're farmers and mechanics and electricians and lawyers and doctors mobilized in a whole city. It's fantastic. In the name of Jesus Christ. Wow. There's a group of people in another town, and th- here's what they say. They say, we exist to help hard-to-employ people find jobs. Now, it's hard enough to help people find jobs, but they want people who struggle with Asperger's syndrome and people who are autistic and people who have disabilities, people who couldn't graduate from high school and people who have physical disabilities, and they say, send them to our church. We want to help them find work. Isn't that beautiful? In the name of Jesus Christ, they do this Vacation Bible School, are you going to pray all week? I hope you will for those hundred kids who come here into this building every day and fill this room. Won't that be exciting? I want to remind you of this article that Diane Parenti wrote. Some of you are new to us. But uh, at Christmas time, the teenagers of our church gave up. Christmas presents, some of their Christmas presents, in order to buy Christmas presents for mothers with babies in the Mercy First organization. And it was startling. One boy, one teenage boy, bought a present for a three-year-old and wrapped it for her and wrote her name on it, and it was the first present he ever bought and first present he ever wrapped in his life for anybody else. Another teenager used the entire sum of money that he earned in his summer work to buy a a luxurious gift, a luxurious gift for a teenage mother because Jesus Christ has been luxurious to him. Wow. Diane said, As she wrote this article, she said, Mercy First is very grateful for the kindness of the My High Youth Group, and everyone is proud of these teenagers for being so generous and willing to help others in need. It's a wonderful lesson for us learned from the youth in our community. In a few weeks, our teenagers are going down to the Bowery Mission in New York City. Are you familiar with the Bowery Mission? Do you know the story of this group of Christians in the late 1870s who found the hungry and the drunk and the broken and brought them into their building? And they struggled until Charles Spurgeon's cousin, John Spurgeon, came with his Christian Herald newsletter and purchased the Bowery Mission. And since that time, thousands and thousands of people 
have been touched and repaired through the gospel of Jesus Christ, taught life skills, helped to get rid of the alcohol that was so crushing their soul. And we're just taking teenagers down there. Why? So they can see. So they can see and participate in the light and the salt of the Bowery Mission. Oh, sure, their property now is worth millions of dollars. But back then, the Bowery was the stinking center of the poor and the struggling in New York City. And at the turn of the previous century, there was not a Christian ministry that did not know the great work of the Bowery Mission. And will it be just a small moment that we can participate as salt and light for Jesus Christ? How do you envision yourself as salt and light? Brothers and sisters, here's a moment for you to bow your heads with me now, to pray with me. And in your relationship with Jesus Christ, invite Him to use you. Let's pray. Lord, we want flavor and zest in our lives as we fulfill the cultural mandate to go and have dominion over the earth and to go to work. And we want to do more than just live to pay the bills. We want to live for you at work, at school, at play. Lord, we want to be light. We want to be the light of the world, that light bulb with the salt shaker on the end. How now would you have us be that salt and that light? someone is hearing you say serve the poor in the food pantry or the thrift store and maybe somebody else is hearing work with teenagers and maybe someone else is saying hearing now is the time to talk to your colleague about spiritual things whatever it is oh lord may we be covenantally faithful the salt of the covenant May we say yes to you now. And we'll give you all the glory. For men will see these good deeds and will worship you. And that will give us great satisfaction, O Lord. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.